The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Dan Snyder is gone. We're recording this the uh, first week of training camp for the Washington Commanders. And uh, excitement, at least from the outside looking in, has never been higher. There was a, uh, I think it was a Washington Post reporter that posted a, uh, a picture comparison <laughs> of camp attendance last year versus this year. And it's like the entire region has been completely reinvigorated. It's amazing. I, as somebody that's lived in that area before, can't welcome it strongly enough. I am so happy for everybody involved that likes Washington Commanders football or has liked Washington football in the past. It has been a long, dark period for that franchise, and it feels like the the sheet's been pulled off and everybody is just basking in the sunshine again and just happy to have football back in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. Speaking of uh, sunshine, by the way, you might notice we're in a different location this week. We're coming to you from the other Washington. We're out in the Puget Sound in uh, quite possibly the nicest summer weather anywhere in the country. Uh, famously gorgeous summer up here in Washington. And, uh, you know, this is our, our second half of the, the home and home. EJ came down for... <laughs> Well, not even half. Came down for the first 75% of the series <laughs> in L.A. And he's like, look, you have to find an excuse to come up here in the middle of July. It's the only nice time of year we have. And uh, he wasn't kidding. So uh, we're, we're taking advantage of the opportunity doing this outdoors for the last couple weeks of this series. And, uh, you know, I, I couldn't ask for a more exciting team to, to kick off the home stretch here because, you know, for, for the first time in quite possibly my entire life, I'm actually excited about the future of Washington football. So we have a lot to go over today, talking team schemes, personnel, like every little nuance we could possibly dig into to get you ready for the 2023 season. Hopefully you stick with us the entire time. And with that, Jay, Autumn, Anthony, roll the intro. Welcome back once again to the Bootleg Football Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my lovely co-host, EJ Snyder, talking Washington Commanders today. Uh, apologize, by the way, if my voice seems a little off. We were supposed to start recording like three days ago, and uh, my body decided to completely give out after some summer travel, and I was I was down for the count for a few days, so we're finally uh, finding the uh, physical ability 
to record today. Well, me, not you. You've been it's, fine. This it's better time. than it was. I mean, you can apologize for it all you want. At least it works today. I can walk 10 feet without falling over now, which is awesome. Solid upgrades. Uh, so, you know, excited to finally be able to get back on the horse and start recording again, talking Washington football. Looking at this team last year, and, and you know, when we did this series last year, we looked at their roster and we're like, hey, this is a, a better roster from a personnel perspective than, than they get given credit for. And this was a team that a lot of people thought could have been four, five, six wins. And, you know, of course, they went eight, eight, and one. And what's interesting is even though they went eight, eight, and one, I still think they underperformed for what they could have done. You know, if they were fully healthy, um, you know, maybe if they gave Sam Howell a shot earlier in the year, <laughs> rather than, than kind of doing the whole Carson Wentz song and dance again. Uh, I, I feel like this could have been a 9 or a 10 win team fairly easily. Funny thing is, at 8-8-1, eight, eight, and one, they would have been competing for the NFC South division lead. Exactly. <laughs> so... The fact that they land in a very strong division in the NFC East and they had to fight it out there. They stayed with Carson Wentz too long. They weren't able to find an offensive rhythm. Really doomed their season. I don't know. Some podcast that I listened to last summer said that they should give Sam Howell a chance early and often. <laughs> they didn't listen until the end of the year. And we saw some flashes, and that's what's got everybody excited. Look, we'll talk a lot about Howell today. We're both really excited about his prospects. But 8-8-1, eight, eight, fourth in the division. Home record of four and five, road record of four, three and one, very similar. And the last five games, one, three and one, up and down with a changed quarterback and everything else. But defensively, this team was really strong and has been really strong. But offensively, they just haven't been able to support that defensive conglomeration of talent that they've assembled and, and scheme that really works. So in their effectiveness summary, effectiveness summary again is using EPA per play for rushing offense, passing offense, rush defense, passing defense, and then we talk about points scored and points allowed. So the rushing offense, 23rd. Passing offense, completely consistent, also 23rd. Both numbers we think are going to go up this year. We'll talk about additions on the coaching staff that have us high on that particular change. But in terms of that defense, rush defense, third in the league, pass defense 10th in the league this is a really solid defense points scored 24th that's right in line with a 23rd ranked rushing offense and a 23rd ranked passing offense where they struggled defensively was points allowed they weren't great in the red zone in terms of a scoring defense they were 26th hmm. in the league so in terms of between the 20s a really strong defense need to get that scoring defense up but if you can turn this offense into even an average unit could have a very competitive team, despite the fact they're in one of the best divisions in football. The big thing for them is they really got to get better in the red zone. This was the 24th, or rather, ninth worst, so 24th <laughs> best, ninth worst offense in terms of capitalizing on red zone appearances by getting touchdowns. They only got touchdowns in about 51% of their red zone appearances. Typically, the best offenses in the league are getting 60 70 sometimes even higher conversion rate like uh the chiefs in particular i'll pull it up right now i remember it was absolutely absurd yep uh so the chiefs their red zone scoring percentage was 71 percent, and so was dallas by the way they mm. were roughly tied at first um but for washington to be all the way down at 51 percent, that means that about half the time that they got inside the opponent's 20 they were walking out with three 
rather than seven or eight. So you're you're not doing yourself any favors by being inefficient in the red zone. And I think if Sam Howell is what we think he can be, mm-hmm. which is a a good vertical passer, but a good vertical passer, excuse me, but also somebody who, you know, when there's not uh, a huge amount of space to work with, can still make tight window throws over the middle, like tough throws over the middle in traffic in the red zone, uh, and just kind of, you know, get five, get seven, get eight yards so that we can get inside the five where Brian Robinson can finish the job for a touchdown. Like that, that goes a long way. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you have to throw from the 18 yard line a dime to right. Terry at the back pylon. Right, not every quarterback can do that consistently, and I'm not saying he has to, but if he can throw a perfect slant in between a linebacker and a nickel mm-hmm. to get us inside the five yard line where the running backs can finish the job, that's how you go from scoring 50% of the time to scoring 60% of the time, which ultimately translates to probably a couple more wins. I couldn't agree more, and the fact that he's what I will call a much more gifted runner than Carson Wentz. Uh, certainly at this stage of Carson Wentz's career, they've already talked about a lot of the RPO game that Eric Bieniemy brought with him from Kansas City and how excited Howell is about running that. He was at his press conference the other day and said, yeah, I, I ran a ton of this in college, especially uh, his last year in college. Um a lot of his threats had graduated and gone to the NFL, and he was asked to use his legs more. And he was leading college football and rushing in the in the first like five or six games. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. So he's got that skill. And defenses are going to have to account for that. They're not just going to be able to drop eight guys into coverage and have a soft, you know, three man rush and not account for him. If the gap opens up, he can take advantage of it. That's all going to help Washington's offense. So it's going to be a theme for the episode talking about things we think are better this year in Washington offense than in last year's version of it. So if you take all those scores, 23rd, 23rd, 3rd, 10th, 24th, and 26th, as you'd imagine, you add them up, divide by six, you get a bootleg power score of 18. That's 20th overall in the NFL as we stack them up. It's actually a little bit higher, but it's because of that third and 10th in rush defense and pass defense that haul up all those other numbers in the mid-20s to even have them break 20 at all in power score. So I think this year, if you get more balance on offense, we're going to see that number be better next year. Yeah, these numbers are a good representation of the fact that they are a team that is on the cusp. Right, you know, playoff teams are the top fourteen teams in the NFL. They're at twentieth in terms of raw score, which let's be honest, around this range, everybody's separated by a few decimal points. So they're in that kind of group of six, seven teams that are that are right there. And I think this reflects that. They are they are somebody where you know, or they're a team that with minor improvements, even minor improvements last year could have made the wild card last year, but this yeah. year definitely seem more primed to make that run, and I, I absolutely would not be shocked if they do. Uh, looking at uh, some of our schematic information that we pull to give more context to the EPA numbers and the power score, we'll start off with defensive coverages because they're, they're a defense that I find uh, really interesting because even though, you know, Jack Del Rio is, like, not, you know, to my knowledge, he's not the Vic Fangio tree. Like, if you just look at the raw numbers... It looks like a Fangio tree defense, which we're seeing kind of proliferated around the NFL. 
uh, you know, it's it, they're fourth overall in quarters. They play a shit ton of quarters. They're fifteenth in quarter, quarter half. So they play a, a lot of you know quarters on one side, half field safety to the other. Um, don't play a lot of cover one. Don't play a lot of cover three. They're twenty fourth in cover one and twenty eighth in cover three. Don't play a lot of cover two. Twentieth in that. But then there's also like this interesting mix of. Uh, and this is mostly on third down where it's a lot of zero. Like they're, they're the ninth most zero calls, which are typically either a red zone call for them or a third down call for them. I mean, low red zone call, not high red zone call. Um, and then third medium, they called a lot of two man at ninth, which is, again, a little bit of a, a change up to have two man be like the situational call on third down, which is which is not really a, a thing that, that Vic does as much. So, it definitely feels like a modern defense mm-hmm. in the sense that it's a lot of quarters and quarter, quarter, half, um, and not as much middle field close stuff. But also, with a little tinge of red zone aggression <laughs> and a little tinge of, of man coverage on third downs, it's just an interesting kind of mix to me. And I'm not saying that he calls the the quarters and quarter quarter half stuff the same way that Vic does because he doesn't and when we get to the Dolphins episode next week and when we get to the Eagles episode later on this week I'll kind of explain what I mean by that um but it is uh it is a more modern uh mix of coverages than I was expecting when I looked into these numbers Del Rio is an interesting coach. I think a lot of people look at the person and things he's said in the past and don't so much focus on the fact that he could very easily, I think, be an old school coach that he's been in the league a long time, has his systems and just says, this is what works, you know, conform or get out. He's not that. This is not the same defense he was calling a decade ago. He's continued to adapt with league trends, with athletes having different skills coming out of college. Washington's assembled a group of those players. And when we get to the draft strategy this year, they were looking for one in particular that they really think they're going to hinge those defensive coverages off of. And it is interesting to see them playing that much quarters, that much quarter, quarter, half, and then think about the draft class and how that fits or integrates with that. Um, But Del Rio has not remained static. He's continued to evolve with league trends, and the best coaches do that. Uh, yeah, particularly the draft picks they brought in, especially Jartavius Martin. Whether he ends up playing corner or nickel or safety, because he's one of the guys that can play anything, mm-hmm. he is specifically tailored to eat in this type of system. Yep. Um, because, A, it's two man on third down, right? Which is, <laughs> I mean, shit, you look at Illinois, all they did was play man coverage. But also in quarters, like it's basically just man coverage with zone zone coverage principles, or zone coverage with man coverage principles, whatever way you want to put it. Yep. And he is a phenomenal man defender, so he's a perfect fit for what they like to do. Again, I have no idea where he's gonna fit on the field right now, but like I think he's an absolutely perfect selection for them. But we'll we'll get to their draft class a little bit later. Looking at their blitz percentages, uh, this part wasn't super surprising uh, because when you have a defensive line as talented as they are they don't have to blitz that much Uh, in third and short situations they were 23rd in terms of bringing pressure they were 24th in terms of blitzing on third and medium at about 24.5 percent didn't do it a whole lot and they were 
relatively average at doing it on third and seven plus at 36.8%, which is mostly just calling fire zone in order to try to force a slide one way so that we can get one-on-ones the other way. Like, it's not like they were doing all the, the crafty, like don't show it and try to spring a guy, you know, like, like how Georgia runs their blitzes where you never know exactly where it's coming from. Like, no, they would, they would declare it because they're trying to get you to slide a certain direction. Um, which when you, again, when you have their defensive line that they do, that's that's kind of how you want to design your defenses. We're forcing you into one-on-ones. We know that you don't want to do these one-on-ones, but we're going to make you do it anyway because our guys are better than your guys. Um, now, overall stunt percentage on third down. This uh, also, when you have a front four as talented as they are, makes a lot of sense. They were sixth in stunt percentage because mm-hmm. if you are rushing four against five or in some cases four against six, the only real way that you can try to, you know, force open cracks and seams in the protection is to run a bunch of different stunts and, you know, try to catch people at awkward angles, try to catch them, you know, mistiming in, in exchange. And they did that a lot. They they ran third down stunts a lot. So, um, you know, as as surprised as I was by the coverage numbers, I was not surprised by the blitz numbers. They have four ass kickers up front. There's no way to sugarcoat that. Talk about Montez Sweat, Deron Payne, Jonathan Allen, and Chase Young. Mm-hmm. They have spent a lot of capital to get each of those guys. They have prioritized picking them up high in the draft. They have paid them handsomely when they've come open in free agency. This is the rock that they build their defense along. Is We are going to have a rock-solid front four on the defensive line, and they've made sure of that. And these guys have paid it off and continue to pay it off, and I don't see that focus changing. Um, they certainly haven't financially given us any indication that they're going to move away from that foundation or that strategy, but it's a lot of fun when you go to Washington Tape to watch these four play together because one of them is always kicking somebody's ass and winning individually. Switching over to the offensive side of the ball for scheme stats, uh, let's look at the run concept frequencies. This is how often they call certain run concepts, so it kind of gives you an idea of what their their run game actually is. They were 12th in outside zone. They were 12th in inside zone, so a pretty healthy mix of both. They were 13th in duo. They were 22nd in power, 10th in counter, 15th in draw, and 25th in pin and pull. What that tells me <laughs> is what concept did the Washington offense really lean into the most? The answer is yes. Like they called everything and anything at any time. Like whether it's outside zone, inside zone, power, counter, duo, like they didn't discriminate. They were not purely an outside zone team, like say Atlanta, where it was like 60% outside zone, I think it was something like that. You know, they weren't purely an inside zone team like Philly, which was like tied for first in inside zone in the league. They called everything. And having a diverse run game and a diverse stable of backs, to be honest, they have a deep backfield and a diverse backfield in terms of skill sets. It allows them to call anything and everything. And I, I think that that is an advantage in the sense that it it makes it so that defenses are not entirely comfortable calling certain fronts against you if there is tape showing that you will call any run at any time, right? Because certain fronts are better against certain types of runs. Mm -hmm. And if you have 
uh, like let's say you're you're in outside zone, right? And they they call a, a a tight front or a bare front on you, like anything that's typically like good, right? <laughs> against outside zone. If you have a check in your back pocket where you can get into counter anytime you need to, they're going to stop calling that front <laughs> because counter, if executed well against a bare front, will go for 25 yards, right? And so I think that even though they didn't execute it the best last year because of injuries and you know the quarterback situation wasn't great, so like again, there's a whole bunch of reasons why the run game wasn't like super efficient last year, but knowing schematically that they do have answers for every single front, it does make it harder to play defense against them because you can't just rely on lining up one way and saying, we're going to stop what you do best, beat us another way, because they can and they will beat you the other ways. Helps with several things, and one is you can disguise your runs uh, more effectively because you can make one look like the other. If you have a skilled group of players that is well-versed, I would say equally well-versed in some very diverse concepts, it's also one of the most fascinating things about Biennemi coming into this is how much is he going to lean into that and say, I can now do anything with sort of equal aplomb, or how much is he going to try and mold it to be, hey, let's be a little bit more specialized. Let's be better at these two or even three types of runs as opposed to five, which is really rare to see on a team's sort of offensive docket. But he's not limited by the situation either in terms – you talked about depth. I think they're legitimately five deep at running back. There are very few teams like that. So it'll be fascinating to see how he takes all those pieces and says, I can do anything I want, but what am I going to focus on and what are we going to try and get good at? And that is a, a point that I want to make, because even though these are last year's numbers, like Eric Bieniemy, like if you look at the Chiefs' offenses over the last 10 years since he was there, at varying years, they specialized in a bunch of different types of runs, right? There was there was years where they were heavy outside zone. There was years they were heavy inside zone. There were years that they focused on gap schemes. So I think that Biennium is going to kind of keep that tradition going of we'll call anything at any time because, you know, as a former running back himself, <laughs> he knows that, like, you, you have to have a diverse run game in order to succeed. And it helps. It, it makes it so the defense has less chance to tee off on you puts them on their back foot more often and you're not going to see as many calls where the defenders are lining up going they're going to do this like calling it out to everybody nope when they line up like this they're going to do this if he's smart and we both believe that he is he's going to have things that look just like that but go the other way switching over to the passing offense now and again these stats God willing, are going to be a lot different this year because the quarterback situation is different. Uh, play action percentage, they were eighth. That I that might actually stay relatively. That might same. stay high. You know, yeah. it kind of helps Sam Howell get acclimated by heavily leaning into play action or RPOs, which, as we've said before, sometimes RPOs get charted as play action. Sometimes mm-hmm. play action gets charted as RPOs. You know, the charting can be kind of wonky for that, but regardless, somewhere in that range. Yep of play action plus RPOs being 30% or more is good for Sam Howell. Average time to throw, they were literally average at 16th (laughs) fast in the NFL, 2.77 seconds. Uh, We hope that Sam gets it out quicker than that. 
uh, for his own safety. Air yardage percentage. This one, I, I, I because I'm not entirely sure which part of the Sam Howell skill set they're going to be leaning into, whether it's the deep balls down the sidelines or the RPOs over the middle, this could go two very different directions here because junior Sam Howell to senior Sam Howell was very different, right? Um, but if they lean into more of the deep ball stuff like he was doing in his second to last year in college, the 55.5% air yardage percentage number will go up and they will probably get a bunch of chunk plays because that is what he did really well in college was mm-hmm. throw deep balls down the sideline to Deami Brown, who ironically is also on this team. Now, if they go more quick game RPO heavy, like they did his last year uh, in college, this will go down and there'll be more of a yak-based offense like we saw with Eric Bieniemy last year in Kansas City, mm-hmm. where they they were like 31st or something like that in, uh, in air yards percentage, meaning the percentage of passing yards that came through the air rather than after the catch. Like Kansas City was heavily yak-based last year. Uh, while also being number one in yards per attempt. So, like, again, just because you're yak-based doesn't mean you can't have a, a huge amount of chunk plays. You're just getting those chunks in different ways. So I'm I'm very curious to see what direction they take this, mm-hmm. whether we're doing deep balls or yak, because Howell can kind of do either or, or both. You yeah. know, we'll see. So just kind of keep an eye on that. Um, now, average depth of target, they were... Again, average at 8.9. That was 15th in the NFL. Big time throw percentage, ninth, 4.2%. And then finally, yards per attempt. And this is really what I was referring to when I said that, God willing, it will be better. Uh, 7.0 yards per attempt, which was 19th in the NFL. Uh, and that's with Terry McLaurin, with Jahan Dotson, yeah. with their running backs that are talented receivers. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. And again, I understand quarterback situation plays heavily into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do think that Sam Howell, even though I struggled a lot with my evaluation of him uh, coming out of college just because the Phil Longo offense like <laughs> just doesn't give me a whole lot to work with. Yeah. Um, and I've I've had so many problems with Phil Longo over the years because how do you have AJ Brown and DK Metcalf in the same receiving core and like not and, use them to their fullest potential? Not use them to their fullest potential. <laughs> um, and and again the same thing with Phil Longo or with uh, with Sam Howell. I'm like like I I get it. Like I see the arm talent, I see the accuracy, the mobility is nice, but like I just I didn't know what I didn't know how I could translate it. But from an arm talent perspective, mm-hmm. there is a lot to work with with Sam Howell and under a capable offensive mind like Eric Bieniemy, I do think that the yards per attempt will go significantly up but even if it's not significantly up even if they're you know 13th 14th instead of just 19th again over the course of a season that still translates to a couple more wins like when I say that the margin for error for the commanders here from both defensively and offensively, like they were really close to being a 10-win team, it's stuff like that. If they're just a little bit better this year mm-hmm. because of how talented their roster is, 
this level of talent getting a little bit better means that they're going to win double-digit games and go to the playoffs, which, you know, for Commanders fans, they'd kill for that at this point. If this offense even sniffs a ranking between, I'd say, 10th and 15th, this is going to be a very good team and a very dangerous team and a dangerous team down the stretch that's probably getting better as the season goes on and peaking late in the year. If that's the case, Commanders fans are probably going to be happy. There's a lot for Howell to work with. He did have sort of two very different turns in his last two seasons in college. The second to last season, he was a thrower. He was a challenger downfield, a dime thrower outside the numbers, deep ball receivers left and right, threw up a lot of points that way. Again, most of those targets left, went to the NFL, and they said, Sam, we got to ask you to do something completely different. We're going to ask ask you to carry the load offensively, and you're going to be the primary rush threat your senior year. He said, okay, very few quarterbacks can do that physically and be are willing to do that mentally. Hey, no, I'm a thrower of the football. I'm, you know, give me some targets. No, he said, fine, I'll go put my nose in there and slam into linebackers four or five, six, (laughs) seven times a game. That just indicated to me how versatile he was physically as a player, but also mentally as a player, just that malleability to say, I'm going to do something completely different you know, the year before, the year I'm basically auditioning to go to the NFL, it's a lot of selflessness there. It's one of the reasons I was really excited about it. I agree that it is more difficult in that offense to pick out quote-unquote Sunday throws. But if you looked at his, I'll call it his body of work, everything was there. His ability to throw in rhythm over the middle, his ability to run, his ability to hit deep balls, his ability to be on time. Anticipation, eh, Maybe not, but there's a lot of college quarterbacks where that's a more difficult thing to assess, again, on an NFL level. But physically, mentally, from a leadership perspective, I really felt like Sam Howell was the answer. It was the reason we called for him to get an earlier appearance last year. But I think a lot of these passing you know, overview numbers are a direct reflection of Carson Wentz because he played most of the year. So play action, talked about that, might stay high. Uh, the air percentage, 11th highest. When you saw Carson Wentz have success, he was still chucking it. You'd watch That's all he really could do. You'd watch an entire <laughs> Commanders game, and there'd be two throws a game that made you go, man, he still got it, because he would just drop it in the bucket 20 yards down the field, but that doesn't sustain drives. That's not consistent. Um, average depth of target, 15th. Again, like you said, really dependent on which offense they're going to choose, which strengths of howls they're going to lean into. Um, and then yards per attempt got to be more efficient no matter what you choose, whether you choose that mid-range RPO game as the sort of you know rack to hang your hat on or whether you decide, nope, we're going to challenge down the boundary. We're going to take the speed and the skill, quite frankly, we have at receiver. We're going to push people vertically. It'll be interesting. It'll be really cool if they keep both, but that yards per attempt, regardless, that's an efficiency stat, and the efficiency has to go up. Switching gears uh, over to the coaching staff, and we've we've mentioned all these guys at least once so far. Yeah. Um, but you know, kind of looking at the power structure as a whole, a uh, lot of former players uh-huh. on this staff. It's a very player friendly staff. Yeah. Because of that, uh, and I, I think that Ron Rivera, like even go back to his time in Carolina, he always had a lot of former players on his staff because I think he is a big believer that relating to players by having shared experiences as NFL players themselves is a key component to coaching. Um, and I always I always notice that he gives 
a lot of former players their first shots in coaching as well. Uh, and so he, he always kind of tries to pay it forward that way too. Um, you know, again, most staves have former players on them, but I always notice that Ron Rivera staves in particular yes. have a lot of former players on them. They are player heavy. And Washington's power structure right up the top has been, I'll just call it varied over the years, and we may see it with the ownership change. We don't talk a lot about owners on this particular podcast, but it is very notable. Ownership changes don't occur all that often in the NFL. It just occurred. It's, it's going from one era that wishes largely to be forgotten by the fan base to an era of hopefulness. So we could see this structure change, but right now they're one of the teams that has a GM, Martin Mayhew at the top, and then an executive vice president in charge of football and player personnel, which is Marty Herney. So he's really the guy that's picking the players, although Martin is his boss uh, officially. And the head coach, Ron Rivera, you mentioned player himself, always gives lots of former players opportunities on his staff in terms of coordinators. Eric Bieniemy, year one, big deal, coming over from Kansas City. Another reason for hope, I think, or renewed hope in the commander's offense is a guy that's had high level of success for really the last decade in the NFL, coming over, getting a chance to kind of hang his own shingle out, out from under the shadow of Andy Reid, so there's not really any question. Comes to play for a defensively-minded head coach, so nobody's going to be like, oh, Ron Rivera is calling the plays. <laughs> no, we know it's the enemy's show, sink or swim. We both think it's going to be more swim than sink, but we'll see. Defensive coordinator Jack Del Rio, been all around the league, former player himself as well. Uh, no stranger to controversy, but on the field, calls a hell of a defense. And special teams coordinator Nate Kazor, it's a very experienced group at the top. We'll see how that overall power structure plays out, whether or not they basically bring both roles under one GM title, pick somebody new, pick one of these guys to stay on. You never really can tell when there's a sort of transition of that magnitude at the top in ownership. In terms of assistant coaches, you know, again, this is where we see even more former players, but also something that I'm seeing become more common in the NFL and even at, at top Power 5 programs in college as well, is coaches specifically uh, tasked with game management, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of where are we on the field, how much clock is left, where are the timeouts, and, you know, kind of keeping track of the flow charts, for lack of a better term. No, it's true. For, for when to use those resources like timeouts, you know, what what you know when do we go no huddle when do we slow things down all, all that kind of stuff right because if you're a head coach and you're trying to keep track of all that in addition to doing all the other head coach stuff it's really hard right and so we're, we're kind of seeing coaches delegate that now mm -hmm. to people that are that is their role is help me manage the game and that's what Kim Zampezi is doing for them yeah, it's really load management for head coaches. And yeah. that's a good thing because the head coach as all everything for everybody all the time isn't realistic in the modern NFL. There's simply too many hats to wear, especially on game day. And if you're going to have them make good decisions, you need some resources dedicated to that. Lots of teams are dedicating a coach to it. You mentioned it's Ken Zampezi. His title, Senior Advisor slash Game Management. He's got 25 seasons coaching in the NFL. It's his fourth in Washington. He spent several of those uh, coaching seasons in the NFL as an NFL offensive coordinator. Very, very experienced. 
interesting that his you know late career arc is moving towards that game management role. Bobby Ingram is the wide receiver coach, as you talked about, former players. Ten seasons already coaching in the NFL. This one makes me feel old. His second in Washington. He's got a fun group of receivers we're going to talk about to try and develop. He had a 14-year career in the NFL as a wide receiver himself with Chicago, Seattle, and Kansas City. So I got to see him play up close. Um, also famously uh, the player that Joe Paterno called the best football player I have ever coached. Really? Yes. And oh. Joe Paterno coached a lot I was gonna say, there's of a football lot players. that went through there, yeah. Randy Jordan is the running back coach, again, former running back himself in the NFL, his 11th season as the Washington running backs coach. That, to me, doesn't even seem possible. Had a nine-year career in the NFL as a running back himself with the Raiders and Jags. And then uh, his understudy, Jennifer King, is the assistant RB coach, six seasons of NFL coaching, her fourth in Washington. We got to see her work up God, close. She's six seasons in already? Yep. Fuck, I'm old. I know. It happened so <laughs> I fast. I first got hired. I know. <laughs> we got to see her work up close at the 2022 Shrine Bowl when she was there coaching. I feel like she's going to be an RB coach outright in her own right in the NFL before long. I was really impressed with how detailed she was, um, how focused she was with players. It's always a, a challenge with coaches to say just enough of the right thing and not say all the things. And she was incredible with that and her ability to basically boil down to a very concise coaching point. This is what you did. Do this. Next rep. And and every time with every player. Very, very personal. Great, great coach. On defense and special teams, uh, Jeff Ganina is the defensive line coach. Eight seasons as an NFL coach. Four in Washington. Also got to see him at the 2022 Shrine Bowl. A detailed and just driven coach. Um, he's not a yeller. Uh, he's very focused, but I don't think you have any chance of misunderstanding his expectations as a coach, which is always super worthwhile. A former seventh rounder played 219 games himself in the NFL. Amazing to see those late round success stories. He's one of them. And then a very familiar name to Commanders fans. Ryan Kerrigan is the assistant defensive line coach. Second season as an NFL coach. Played 10 years in Washington, racked up 95.5 sacks. How bad do you think he wanted 100? Oh, and I think that's why he went to Philly <laughs> yeah. in 2021. He's like, just try to get me to that triple digits. That's all he wanted. That, it would have been a tremendous number. 95 and a half is a tremendous number in his own right. Washington's all-time leader there in sacks and had a 139 consecutive games played streak from 2011 to 2019. I don't think people realize how hard that is to do as a defensive lineman. I was going to say, given his position, this is not a kicker, folks. This is somebody that is locking horns with 300-plus pound guys every single down. Your ability to play eight straight years at that position is truly Iron Man stuff. I, I really think that he was always kind of like the forgotten part of that legendary 2011 pass rush class because you had... You know, Von Miller was at the top, um, Alden Smith, J.J. Watt, Cam Jordan. And, like, it always felt like everybody was like, oh, yeah, and Ryan Kerrigan. Oh, yeah, and Ryan Kerrigan. And it's like, no, 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 no. Not a, oh, yeah, and Ryan Kerrigan. Like, this is one of the best pass rushers of his generation. Again, all-time leader Uh for the franchise in sacks. Like, he's not an, oh, yeah. He's Ryan fucking Kerrigan. Like, put some respect on his name, right? For he's, sure. He's awesome. I'm happy he's coaching there. Yeah, and 
was such a power-based player. Yeah. It wasn't as we talk about this when we do draft evaluations, wasn't necessarily as flashy or as bendy, but much like the guys he's now coaching, he was an ass kicker. He was going to make it a physical affair every single game, makes that consecutive games played streak even more impressive with that play style. People were comparing George Karloftis to him when Karloftis was coming out, and I was like, be careful with that. <laughs> Has some similarities. It's fighting words for me. Be yeah. careful with that, guys. <laughs> yeah. Kerrigan's different. Uh, all right. Now, given all of that, that we've talked about so far. Uh, you know, we talk about Eric Bieniemy coming over. We talk about uh, the schematic information. You know what they leaned into last year. What they might lean into this year. You know, talking about Sam Howell. Everything that we've discussed so far. If we're trying to find value, like if we're drafting for value, we're probably not going to draft Terry McLaurin and Jahan Dotson at a value because they're both going in the top. 36 for receivers right however there is one place where there still is value when it comes to mclaren mclaren and dotson which arguably top three to four receiver duo in the nfl i'm not afraid to say that there is still one way to get value with them and that is season-long pickums because right now <laughs> and again i apologize to anybody underdog that is watching this uh but it's bullshit right now <laughs> the number that is set for Terry mclaurin for season long is 950 yards which is a little bit disrespectful jahan dotson season long 800 yards they don't have a number for sam howell at the moment but i have to imagine given the projections for the receivers they probably have him at under three similar to like Anthony Richardson, if they were going to release that number right now. It feels like the market is way too low on the commander's passing attack relative to what we think they could be, right, with Biennemi and with Howell's arm talent and everything like that. But I truly do think that that McLaurin at 950 is ridiculous. Yeah, and I'll, Jahan I'll take that. And healthy Jahan at 800 is also ridiculous because he would have crushed that last year if he was healthy, but I I, I don't think he's going to be hurt two years in a row, right? Well, knock on well, this isn't wood. Knock on whatever this is. <laughs> knock on faux wood. But like that just seems like extremely low numbers for both of them. We're talking about two of the preeminent separators in the league. Like I don't care how young you know Dotson is. Like he proved that in his limited time last year that he can get open against pretty much anybody. I don't know. It feels like if we're if we're trying to go for a value here, it's not with drafting them. It's more so doing with the season long pickums because those numbers are just ridiculous. I'll take the McLaurin number every day and twice on Sunday. In an Eric B. Enemy offense, there is usually a favored wide receiver that gets a large share of the targets. If that's not Terry McLaurin, you can kick me midway through the season. It's gonna be Terry McLaurin. And he's gonna go over a thousand yards receiving if Howell is anywhere near what we think he's going to be. Like I would say over a thousand easily. And if you can get a hundred plus yards in a season long pick'em as a cushion that you're pretty sure you're gonna get, go put your money down, folks. He was knocking on the door of twelve hundred 
last year. And last year was a little <laughs> bit of a mess in terms of the passing game. So it's like, you know, our projections are 250 yards less just because Sam Howell's there. When Sam Howell, at least in the limited action we saw, might have been their most capable quarterback on the roster. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's a it's a weird number to me. Um so again, you know, Rudman, Zach, whichever you're watching this, it's not a shot at you guys, but what the hell, man? <laughs> it's not a shot, but what the hell? What's going on? Uh, now, in terms of the rest of their best ball values, like, again, Howell is is underrated, in my opinion. He's at QB 27, and I'm not saying that he is the 27th best quarterback in the NFL because there are probably some backups around the league that are better than Sam Howell, or at least what Howell is going to be as a starter. But in terms of who's going to be the most productive quarterback in the NFL, I don't think he's going to be the 27th most productive because, again, he can run. Uh He's got a fantastic assortment of weapons. The offensive line has, on paper, improved over the last year. I don't know. Him being a bottom five quarterback in terms of production in the NFL doesn't sit right with me. So if we're drafting for value, that's where you're going to draft for value. Um, Antonio Gibson is an RB32. Brian Robinson is an RB37. If I had to choose between the two of them, give me Brian Robinson, uh, especially at RB37. That means he's going as like an RB4 in 12-man leagues right now, which is weird to me. (laughs) And then Logan Thomas, this one, I know this one pisses you off. And again, the injury plays a factor here, but TE36 for Logan Thomas. What's going on? Let him sleep. Let him sleep on Logan Thomas. Very talented tight end. A lot of athletic gifts. Very good pass catcher. And again, in the offense that we think, we don't know, but that we think Eric Biennemi is going to install, it seems like tight end's kind of a featured role. Yeah, just a little bit. Just just a little <laughs> bit. So uh, Logan Thomas, absolutely value. I like the combination with both throwing and running that Sam Howell presents. Um, Brian Robinson, I'm with you as RB1 in that offense, probably better than RB37 uh, as he's currently being drafted. So there's some values to pick around the edge. Most interested by those season-long pickums, though, because those seem like where you've got the greatest potential. Once again, if you're interested in trying to capitalize on any of these values, whether you're doing best ball drafts for the $15 million prize pool in Best Ball Mania right now, so you want to try to grab Sam Howell as your QB3 because you can, or you want to grab Logan Thomas as your, you know, super late flyer at tight end, or, you know, you feel like Brian Robinson is going to outproduce an RB4 spot, so you want to grab him, you know, try to go on a run with those guys while you load up on the Jamar Chases of the world early on. Uh, you know, because best ball is all about finding the super late values that can give you the spikes when you absolutely need them. Uh, or if you want to focus on the season long pickums, because people have been having a lot of fun finding the extremely odd numbers <laughs> that we've been throwing out on the season long stuff. Uh, by the way, Calvin Ridley, 870 yards is Stop the number. Stop it. 870 for Calvin Ridley? Don't not even run, don't walk. Like sprint at your top speed of your life to go get that number before it changes. Like the McLaurin number is ridiculous, but the Calvin Ridley number is like, what are we doing? That's just begging it's for him money. to find whoever set that and give them a healthy slap. I mean, I'm 
I, I did like a I, I did a full slip where I, I basically all like the crazy values. It was like Anthony Richardson at like twenty seven hundred yards or whatever it was. Calvin Ridley at eight seventy. The Terry number at nine fifty. Um, D Hop at like eight seventy five. I just loaded up on on all five of those in one slip because I'm like these all seem like just absolutely absurd numbers. I put like twenty bucks on it. So if it hits, you know, it pays out. Uh, let's see, I did insurance, so it's 10 to 1. I only need to hit 4 out of 5, so it pays like 200, 200 bucks if 4 out of 5 hit. I don't know. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to go and find those numbers, comb through and look for those you know, adjusted values, and you can find them in either place. You can find them in best ball drafts. You can find them in season-long pickups. So if you want to get in on this yourself, you know, make your Sundays a little bit more interesting this season, uh, whatever you deposit up to $100 will get matched with promo code bootleg. So, you know, whether you put in 10, they'll give you an extra 10 to play around with. If you put in 100, they'll give you an extra 100 to play around with. Again, using promo code bootleg on Underdog Fantasy. You can do everything from best ball to season long pickums to uh, pickums week by week during the season. And there's also stuff for every other sport as well. So, if you're a baseball fan, basketball fan, hockey fan, esports, whatever. So, uh, again, thank you to Underdog for sponsoring this show and making all of, all of this, this possible. possible. Uh, and, you know, Nick, don't get mad at me for talking shit about your guys' numbers. That's all I'm asking. Yeah, set a line. Find out. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's get to free agency, both losses and gains. Not a whole lot of... Uh, you know, massive losses here. A couple like key contributors, but nothing that I would consider to be um, detrimental to the long-term health of the franchise. Biggest ones are probably Tri Turner, right guard for the Commanders, moving on. He played sixty, almost sixty-five percent of their snaps last year. Taylor Heineke, who's played a big role for the Commanders over the past few seasons, moving on to the Falcons to be their backup. Um, Bobby McCain, the safety, 93% of their snaps. Now, they are going to have to replace those again. They drafted pretty well to be able to do that. Um, But he is going to be missed by Commanders fans. He's been very solid in the secondary, which, again, is a more underrated unit around the league, I think. They have a lot of talent in that secondary. McCain moves on. And Cole Holcomb, the linebacker, about 42% of the snaps, more of a little bit of a strong side linebacker for them, moves on to the Steelers, which I think is a good fit. Again, nothing earth-shaking in terms of free agency losses. In terms of retentions and third-party additions, obviously Darren Payne's the biggie, twenty-two and a half million per year, big big number. You know, gets him. Well, for a short time, he was at the top. A <laughs> very DT short market. time. Um, yeah, there's a whole bunch of interior defensive linemen that were signed this offseason. None of them quite reached Aaron Donald's number, and for good reason because AD's. AD. Quite possibly the greatest interior defensive lineman to ever play the game, if not the greatest defensive player to ever play the game. So it makes sense that none of them quite reach that. But, you know, considering what uh, what DTs were getting paid even five, six, seven years ago, $22.5 million, you know, it's a position group that's moving up in the world. If you can rush the passer, which Payne obviously can, there is a path to make ridiculous amounts of money. So good for him. Uh, also brought back Tyler Larson, David Mayo, um, let's see, Jeremy Reeves, Kaliki Hudson. Again, you know, more guys that are 
you know, rotation guys or snap eaters or backups or special teamers. Mm-hmm. And Payne was the only star that they retained here. Um, in terms of third-party additions, they got Jacoby Brissett in to back up Sam Howell. That is the role that we were told to expect was he is the veteran backup. He is there to guide Sam Howell, help him however he needs, and if things go south, he's a good enough starter that they can throw him in there to try to resurrect the season. But he is there to back up Sam Howell, not start in front of him. Uh, Andrew Wiley, they gave him a, a pretty decent contract, $8 million a year, uh, given the current tackle market. Mm-hmm. Seems fair. Uh, he did sure. improve during the back half of last year. He started out rough. like He was giving up a lot of pressures. But throughout the course of the season... He kind of tightened up, and especially you know, at the Super Bowl, he played his best game in the Super Bowl. So, again, eight million for a right tackle that uh, seems to be on the upswing is perfectly fair. And obviously, Andrew Bieniemy is very familiar with him because uh, he played under him in Kansas City. Uh, Nick Gates, they also brought in for five and a half million to presumably be the starting center. Uh, Cody Barton, they brought in from the Seahawks for three and a half million. I actually like Cody Barton a lot. I'm surprised the Seahawks didn't retain him. So I was a little bit, a little miffed to see him leave Seattle. But that was a good pickup for Washington. I like him a lot as a player. Um, and yeah, other than that, like Abdul Anderson, Trent Scott, like, you know, minor deals there. But uh, not not a whole lot of big money get getting thrown around here other than obviously Deron Payne. Jacoby Brissett, key addition. I think better than Carson Wentz currently if you're just stacking the two of them. So even if Sam Howell gets injured or can't go, commanders are going to be able to move forward with Jacoby Brissett and I think still maximize a lot of the potential that Eric Bieniemy is going to bring to that offense. All right, let's get to the draft finally. And I want to preface my thoughts here. All right. <laughs> you're going to get out in front of this one, are you? Because I loved – Everything they did from round two to round seven. (laughs) I have a vehement, vehement disagreement with uh, the Emmanuel Forbes pick in the first round. Other than that, I loved everything. And I'm, I'm allowed to love everything else while also hating that pick. You know, like... Humans are nuanced creatures. I can have, I can think two different things. I can talk out of both sides of my mouth. That pick was terrible. Rounds two to round seven, fucking awesome. So again, I want to preface my thoughts here by saying I liked their draft overall, but that pick in particular, I hated it, and that was one of my least favorite picks in the entire draft. You want to talk about why, since that's the place we're starting off? Let's talk about why. So you look at Emmanuel Forbes. You know, and he was coming out. Uh, I think he met, weighed in at like what one sixty six, one sixty five, yeah. And everybody's like, "Oh, he's going to get up to the low to mid one seventies by camp." What mid one seventies is tough. Low one seventies, I would I would be okay with you. Okay, you could put on seven pounds of healthy weight in a few months by camp. You come in, you're one seventy two, fine. Uh, I'll live with that. It's still light, but at least it's not like historical precedent breaking light (laughs) here's the problem when you look at the strengths of manual forbes everybody's always talking about what what was the first thing i said ball production ball production had a bunch of picks 
bunch of pick sixes, breaking all these records. Nobody scores like Emmanuel Forbes scores on defense. But if you go back and you actually watch the film <laughs> of those interceptions, it was tips, overthrows, outright shitty balls that were just dropped into his hands. There was one, I think it was Arkansas, if I recall correctly, where he got straight up toasted on a seam route where, you know, quarterback let it go all the way to the end zone. And if he just threw a normal ball, <laughs> it's a touchdown. But because he underthrew it by like five yards and Forbes was so far behind the guy, it just dropped right into his hands. Like, I can't tell you how many times he got beat and then got bailed out by a bad throw that didn't go to the receiver, but mm-hmm. it went behind the receiver. But because he was so far behind the receiver, the ball went to him. Like, I, again, I don't want to say he was lucky because you still have to be able to catch, mm-hmm. still got to be able to score, all that kind of stuff. But let's not act like, you know, he was jumping all these passes and making mm-hmm. crazy instinctual plays. He had the one where he jumped the screen. Mm-hmm. That was a great play. Yep. But everybody's acting like every one of his picks was like that one, and they weren't. No. If you watch the film, it's mm-hmm. tips, it's overthrows, it's bad balls. And he was the benefactor of that. I don't think he's a bad corner, mm-hmm. but he's not the 16th best player in this draft class. I don't disagree with the end statement of that assessment. Um, agree completely on the film assessment of all the balls that he either got his hands on uh, or was able to intercept or was able to historically take back for pick sixes. I watched every one. And the vast majority of those were not because he made great plays. Yes. And that's okay. He has great length. He is quite tall for being very skinny. Uh, He moves pretty well. He has good speed. He is a good corner. Good corners don't necessarily go 16th. It was high, in my opinion, for the player, especially if you're leveraging that off-ball production because of the type of ball production that occurred. If you're saying he's a really good corner, we love the way he moves, we love his length, and you're picking him 16th, that's just you seeing him differently than me. And that's fine. And that may be the case with Washington. I hope it is for their sake. Um, We'll see. But moving on, round two, pick 47, one of our favorite players in the draft, cornerback Jartavis Martin from Illinois. Played a little bit of safety, a little bit of nickel, a little bit of outside corner at Illinois. He's lined up currently in their early preseason or... Uh, starting to be camp depth chart at nickel. I think that's a great role for him. You can call him star. He has that ability to move all over the defense. We talked a little bit about that at the top. Great, great player. Very impactful player. Very physical player. Um, Has a great understanding. Uh, Obviously studies film and is moving very quickly off the snap. Makes him look even faster. But he ran a great time too. He's a great athlete. So when you combine those two things or three things, you get a a player that we're really high on that we think can have a lot of impact in their secondary, which is really talented. If he starts as a rookie in that talented secondary, it tells you everything you need to know about Jertavius Martin. Round three, pick 97, center Ricky Stromberg. One of our sort of dark horse favorites in this draft. After we got a chance to interview him at the Shrine Bowl, we didn't get a chance to put up the film of that. Thanks, Arkansas SEC, (laughs) for not allowing us to use film. 
that's all we talked about was film. And once we started talking about film, Ricky Stromberg just relaxed and opened up and gave us one of the best interviews that we had all off season. And we got to understand how much he understood about the game, about the quarterback playing behind him, about the defense playing across from him. Very, very smart player. Also physically talented. He has good size for center, moves very well, and played against a whole host of ass kickers in the SEC on in terms of interior defensive linemen. You know all their names because they all get drafted. Um, he held up against those guys. Love, love, love Ricky Stromberg. Wouldn't be surprised if he's starting. I don't want to say sooner because they did bring in a veteran, uh, but if he's not starting by the by this time next year, I would be a little bit surprised just because of the caliber of player he is. Round four, pick 118, tackle Braden Daniels out of Utah. Here's where I get wishy-washy. You you got wishy-washy right off the top. I, you know, this is fine. It's round four. It's getting to be the point in the draft where you go, if we're going to get a tackle, we got to get one. They reach out and get Braden Daniels. Nothing against Daniels. I don't think he's a bad player. I didn't think he was great, and I thought there were better values on the board. That being said, I'm just kind of neutral about it. I'm meh. I'm not awful. Round five, pick 137. They get Edge K, Edge KJ Henry out of Clemson, the other Edge out of Clemson, who I thought was better than round five. We, we a lot of times we say, "Oh, it was a little early." I thought there were better players on the board, just like I did for Braden Daniels. I actually thought KJ Henry was better than his draft status in round five at pick 137. Think he'll contribute. Really excited for him to go in to work with Coach Ganina and Ryan Kerrigan. I think he's got a lot of physical tools. I think he fits the mold of that more heavy-handed physical edge they really like. Was surprised he was still there in round five. Great value for them. Round six. Couldn't be a more Washington pick at running back than Kentucky's Chris Rodriguez Jr. at pick 193. Absolute bowling ball. Hammer between the tackles. Going to run people over all day long. That is his calling card. hes I don't think he's ever really going to do anything else. Doesn't really want to do anything else. And, again, fits a hole in their running back room, which is incredibly deep, but really good value down in round six. And round seven, they have him listed as a linebacker, Andre Jones, as a big ass linebacker, that's really an edge to me, or even a defensive I'm end. With air quotes, yeah, yeah from <laughs> Louisiana. Having stood next to Andre Jones, he is a big human being. They're saying linebacker, I'm saying defensive end. Either way, very talented guy physically. Again, I think a good value and a developmental player. So, top to bottom, say what you want about Emmanuel Forbes. Really strong draft class, reloads the coffers, solid job. For what it's worth on the depth chart, they have him at defensive end. I just think they, yeah, I don't know why the designation was <laughs> linebacker when they drafted him, but I don't know. That How many linebackers huge six, to be a four, linebacker. Two, 65. Yeah, he's a big dude. Um, yeah, I want to echo the sentiments on Jartavius Martin. I, th- I had a much higher grade on him than I had on Forbes, so getting him 30 picks later is great value to me. I thought he could have gone in the first round. I wouldn't have batted an eye. No. Like, he is my... And I usually have like one safety nickel hybrid every single year where I'm like first rounder. Uh, and they end up always end up going in the second round <laughs> and they're always great. You know, yeah. it's it's Javon Holland, it's uh Jesse Bates, uh Buddha Baker. Well, did Buddha go in the first round? Now I can't remember. I can't remember. I want to say second. But he was you know, he was one of the ones. Um there was the one of the only ones that didn't work out for me is the kid out of Cal, uh, kid out of Cal a couple of years ago that I uh, went a, to the Jets. Yeah, Ashton, Ashton. Shit, I can't remember his last name. But you know, my hit rate on these like 
second round safety nickel hybrids is usually usually pretty good and Jartavius is this year's version <laughs> of that uh, so I think he's going to be phenomenal for them uh, Ricky Stromberg was one of my favorite centers in this class super smart super tough super strong yep. um, you know one of the reasons why I was not that keen on the Zach Pickens pick for Chicago was because Ricky Stromberg absolutely annihilated him Yep. You know, and and Stromberg is, I I I don't really understand why he wasn't seen as a top hundred pick throughout the process, and I I didn't think he was that far off, you know, the the top centers that we always heard about in this class. But like, if you watch the the film of Stromberg against SEC defensive tackles mm-hmm. every single week, he was just as good, if not better. But nobody ever talked about him. You know, he was seen as like a fifth or sixth round guy on most like composite big boards. But you and I were like, I like, are we missing something? Like, is there something we don't know about him? I it's hard for me to imagine that he is, you know, we're talking about it's a full round worse than Juice Scruggs. And honestly, I think Juice could have been picked in the third and yeah. Stromberg could have been picked in the second, and I wouldn't have batted an eye. But they were both top 100 you know when as as early as a or as late as a week before the draft they were seen as quote-unquote day three picks and we're like i, I don't know, I don't about, know that. about that <laughs> they're they're too good at their jobs to get picked back late that late and of course they both went in the top 100 um but yeah i i love ricky stromberg and i, I think he's gonna be if not a starter at center because they brought in gates i still think he can play guard hmm like I think he has the play strength for guard, and he'd be just fine there too. So he's going to get on the field at some point, yeah. and once he gets on the field, I don't, I don't think it's going to be easy to get him off. Um, and then one note on KJ Henry, good fit for this defensive line room because he wins in a lot of different ways. You know, very developed as a pass rusher, bunch of moves, bunch of counters. Um, you know, having somebody that can win outside, win inside win straight through you with power like he's not the most physically gifted in fact i wouldn't call him physically gifted but he makes up for it with technique and you know with discipline and all the stuff that defensive line coaches love right because if if you can play with technique and discipline even if you're not the most physically talented player you can still be productive and he's going to be productive because of that so i really like that pick in the fifth round for them good player but yeah i just i love this draft after Forbes. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to convey here. Is they got a couple guys that I think will be stars in Jartavius Martin and Ricky Stromberg. And they got a couple guys that I think will be good contributors in KJ Henry and Chris Rodriguez in rotations. So that's a successful draft class to me, and I think they did a good job. And then looking at their UDFAs, uh, Kaz Allen, wide receiver, uh, well, everything. Slash, at, slash. At, at UCLA. Um you know, probably a practice squad guy for them. And then Mitchell Tinsley is somebody who I would like to believe that he would make the 53. But looking at their depth chart at receiver, which again is very good. You got McLaurin, Dotson, and Samuel as your top three. You got Dax Mill, Deami Brown, Byron Pringle. And then you're looking for a spot after that. You're already six deep. I just don't think there's room so he's also probably going to be on the practice squad. But I do think that he is such a an intriguing player and somebody who's so good in like contested catch situations that 
he'll probably get picked up somewhere. I would have liked to see him stick here, but you know, it's just an unfortunate consequence of being in a very talented receiver room that he might not get a chance here, but he will get a chance somewhere. I really believe that. Yeah, tough room to crack, and Kaz Allen, extremely small but extremely quick and also fast, has special teams versatility. If he makes this roster, it'll be through that. That'll be his way on to the 53. Most likely will probably start out as a practice squad guy but brings real juice to the special team game. So um, had a great senior bowl. Other than that, a lot of guys they brought in, not too many that we were fired up about in their UDFA class. But when you add it up with what was a very good draft class, a really good offseason in terms of talent acquisition for Washington. And that brings us to our final two segments of this episode, the report card, as well as our ceiling and floor for win totals here. Report card. If you're not familiar with this segment, we have four categories, front office, coaching staff, offensive talent, and defensive talent. And we're basically grading whether this is going up, down, or even relative to last year. So it's more of an off-season grade of did they get better, did they get worse, or are they the same in those four categories? Front office, we're going even keel. Again, same group. Uh, you know, there is an ownership switch. So we'll see if this same group is going right. to be sticking around long term. But for now, uh, you know, I feel like they've done a fine job. They, they they were not handed the easiest job in the world because of the former owner. Um, but I think they did the best with what they could. And I think they're doing okay. Again, they, they have built a good roster. So we'll go even with the front office. Coaching staff couldn't do anything but up. You know, you bring in an Eric Bieniemy to run this offense, and I think, um, I think if Bieniemy is what we think Bieniemy is, in terms of being a good play caller, good play designer, good leader of men, all the stuff that we've heard that he is in Kansas City, but he just wasn't getting the shot to be a head coach because everybody that comes out of Kansas City, we just assume that it's all Andy, right? right. You know, I think uh, after the Matt Nagy thing, people, at least owners around the league, maybe got a little spooked about bringing in people from the Andy Reid tree again. And I think that's worked against Biennemi. But if Biennemi comes in and does what we think Biennemi will do, which is energize this passing game and get them to the playoffs, he probably will be a head coach sooner rather than later. Uh, so we had to go up there. Offensive talent will go even because personnel-wise, it's pretty similar, like some minor swaps and tweaks here and there, but mostly pretty similar, and this is a very talented offense. It was a talented offense last year mm -hmm. that just wasn't executing well, but the talent is there for them to be a top 12 to 15 offense. They just have to live up to that. Defense, again, going even there as well. Uh, it was already a talented defense before. It's still a talented defense now. Again, some minor swaps and tweaks. But the core is still the same. And they're still probably going to be a top 10 defense. Should be. With the coaching and the personnel, again, might be a little bit deeper. We could have maybe edged the arrow up there. But neutral is not bad here. 
they were good, they're going to stay good is what that particular neutral means. In terms of Biennemi, if he can take the offense from anywhere in the mid-20s, which is where it was, depending on the ranking you're looking at, and move it up to the mid-teens, this entire team is going to reap the benefits of that because they're already a good defense. They're already pretty well coached with Rivera. Yes, you can say a couple of things about game management, not the greatest. Look to have maybe addressed that as well. And then the offense comes up. This is going to be a team that even in a stacked division can challenge. So for an eight-win team last year, if we're looking at even, up, even, even, you know, again, that might sound like we're saying they're going to be an eight or nine win team again. And that's not what I'm saying at all. Nope. Because I have my floor for them as their ceiling that they hit last year, which is eight wins. Like that is my floor for them this year because I believe in the addition of the enemy, because I believe that Howell and Brissett is a better quarterback room than what they had last year. And because I think that overall, the vibes in the building, <laughs> Sans, Dan Snyder, are so much better that it's hard to be worse. It really is. Like, this is this is already a good roster that was dragged down by an incompetent, callous, shit-stained of an owner. And I, I think that the players didn't deserve him. The coaches didn't deserve him. The staff didn't deserve him. And the fans didn't deserve him. They won eight games in spite of him, not because of him. Which doesn't sound like earth-shattering, right? It doesn't sound like that's, you know, making a run at the division or making a run at the first scene. I don't think they will. But I think 11 wins is perfectly respectable and perfectly capable of making it to the playoffs. Mm -hmm. And for this team, you know, if they have a strong run game, and they have a strong defense, and their quarterback doesn't fuck it up. Like, even if you're an 11-win wildcard team, you can go on a run. You can do something with that. And I'll tell you what, you know, even though we don't root for Washington, you know, we, we root for Houston and Chicago. I will say, if Houston and Chicago are out of this thing, the funniest possible outcome of this year <laughs> is Washington winning a Super Bowl the year that Dan Snyder is gone. There is nothing that would warm my soul more than watching that man see his team lift the Lombardi Trophy without him. I would relish that, and I hope it happens because I want that man to be miserable. I hope he knows the reason they failed was because of him, and I want him to stew in that misery because on behalf of Washington fans, that misery is what he deserves. Nothing less. This was an incredibly proud organization in terms of its football product on the field, its history, its success, its amazing players throughout the years. And that all basically got mined, stripped away, eroded, washed away, blown away, whatever over the course of the last, you know, couple of decades. And I, too, would like to see a return of prominence for the NFL team from Washington because the NFL is better when that team is good. And they haven't been good in a while. Their fans deserve it, especially the ones that have hung around. My ceiling and floor are the same, 11 and 8. 
wearing the commander shirt today. This is my sort of sleeper power team in the NFC. And you might say, well, only 11 wins. I believe strongly that this is a team set up that if they do well enough to get themselves into the playoffs, no one's going to want to play them at the end of the year. They're going to have a potentially explosive offense, a lockdown defense that is no fun to play, a solid veteran coaching staff. This is not the kind of team you want to come up against on any given Sunday in the playoffs, and they could go on a run. I am bullish on Washington's chances this year. I've been telling anybody that will listen that I am high on the commanders this year. I would like a new mascot, a new name. I'm very interested in that process. Well, there's reports that they're renaming the team again. It I might hope take so. a few years, but I hope so. Uh commanders is fine <laughs> and fine being used in the term of like, eh, don't love it, please get rid of it. Fine. Uh, I think there are a lot better names out there, but I want this team to win much like you do. I want to see these players rewarded. Like we've said, it's a very good roster that's been constructed, and they almost won 10 games last year. So even if they just even that out one more, it doesn't seem like a great addition. But if they roll into the playoffs, mark my words, nobody's going to want to play them. No, it's a good roster. It's a good team. You know, I Pretty much all the ingredients are there for them to be a successful franchise. And and the one thing that was holding them back, well, not the one thing, but the main thing. The main thing. That was holding them back is now gone. So uh, I, I wish them all the best. Um, I'm happy that I can be happy for them again because yes. it always felt icky. Dirty. Dirty. Like when we do these previews every year, we're like, God, do we have to... Do you have to say good things about a team that's owned by a total jerk? And now we don't. And now we don't. And it's it's great. The lid has been lifted, and we couldn't be more thrilled. If you happen to be a Commanders fan and you couldn't be more thrilled, I bet you couldn't be at this point, and you decide that you finally want to support the team, upgrade your gear, go check out homage.com. They're a clothing sponsor. They made this t-shirt, which is so incredibly soft. This is the first time I'm wearing it, and I don't think I'm going to take it off for the rest of the day. I am happy to be able to wear Commander's gear and feel proud about that. Uh, if you want to have that same experience, go check them out. They've got an NFL license, probably 30 designs, t-shirts, hoodies, throwback stuff, modern, all the good stuff. Check them out. Uh, we'll be back here tomorrow, same time, same place. Uh, talking Giants, and then we got Cowboys after that, and then we got uh, Eagles after that, and then we're picking a division winner. So uh, make sure to come back for the rest of the week for the rest of the NFC East. It is a banger of a division. Lots going on. And then we got AFC East next week. Remember that, wrapping up this whole series. So if you've stuck with us this entire time, we appreciate you. We'll see you back here again tomorrow for Giants. And until then, bye.